Oh, I should be looking not up there anymore. All right, you guys set? Here you go. Uh, welcome to Creativity, the podcast where art and engineering collide. Today, we have a guest with us. Uh, we're going to be talking about woodworking with uh, Rex Kruger. How are you doing today, Rex? I'm fantastic. Thank you guys so much for having me on. This is a real treat. Well, it's pleasures all ours, of course. And um, Rex, you do, I guess, woodworking for, for humans, right? Yeah, that's the name of a series that I do on my channel. I call it Woodwork for Humans, and it's a uh, low-budget, low-technology approach to get people started woodworking as quickly and easily as possible. Okay. And just, I guess, for you, you, you do YouTube full-time, correct? So. Yeah, correct. That's well. I mean, YouTube uh, is the center of my business. Uh, I have a bunch of other things that kind of orbit around YouTube that actually pay my mortgage. But yeah, I'm a full-time content creator. Okay, very cool. And how long has that been been your, I guess, job? Something around two to three years. I made a slow transition very gradually from uh, working, doing woodwork for other people and also doing custom work. So I worked part time for a bunch of other shops and then I had my own custom clients and I was slowly ramping up the YouTube channel until the point where the YouTube channel was able to take over. So it was a gradual uh, and completely white knuckle transition where I was constantly on the verge of bankruptcy for years. Um, and then it became a full time thing. Oh, I'm sure. So you worked for, you know, I guess my understanding, you were a English teacher before that, correct? Yep, and that, that for 11 years. 11 years. And then you made the transition to actually making a cabinet, cabinet making, correct? You, you were working for somebody else as far as woodworking. Yep. And then you started transitioning to actually having your own clients. And then you eventually made it into YouTube full time and the rest of your business, as you say, correct? Yeah, it's, it's a long and complicated story filled with absurd coincidences. If it sounds improbable that somebody could go from being a university English faculty to being a woodworker, it sounded just as insane to me. And even though it was my ambition, the fact that it actually happened is still completely mind-blowing to me. And it really shouldn't have happened, but it just happened to work out. So, yeah. Well, that sounds that sounds really interesting, actually. What? So what? So your ambition was always to go full-time YouTube, I guess, for long before that. Is that is that correct? Yeah. You know, I, I bet a lot of your uh, listeners would tell the same story. But you know, early YouTube, probably oh four, oh five. I just saw this guy named Jimmy Duresta. Yeah, we've, we've heard of him before. Yeah, most people have. And I, I was just completely mind blown by what he was doing. Um, I grew up in a super mechanical environment. My great-grandfather and grandfather were both machinists. My grandfather was a master tool and die maker. Uh, my father was uh, in, in white-collar sales, but he was a super passionate auto mechanic and restored vintage Fords. He transferred that love to my brother, who ultimately left a legal practice to own his own garage, and that's what he does full-time, so he's an attorney who owns a garage. And so I just grew up in this environment where tools and materials and fixing and building things was just normal. Um, and I think like a lot of kids, I had complete disdain for it, and I rebelled completely and wanted nothing to do with it. So while my brother and dad were fixing cars, I was playing in rock bands and writing fiction. 
And when I was younger being in plays and I had just no interest in any of that stuff. And um, I think it was seeing Jimmy dressed as videos and seeing some other things suddenly got me to understand like, oh, the technical stuff that I grew up with and the fine arts stuff that I love aren't nearly as separate as I think they are. You can take machining, welding, woodworking, and do things that are every bit as artistic as the other things that I enjoyed. So getting these technical skills, that can be a pathway to artistic expression. Absolutely. I think that's 100% correct. I think that's something that people, you know, they think, you know, I'm a mechanical engineer by by training, and it's just like, you know, you go through, you do the math, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you have to think, I don't know, there's just a lot of creativity and, and artistic expression in the machines that you make or, or whatever else anything like that i think there's a lot of a lot of that which i think is cool and i guess it's kind of the the point of this podcast in some ways just that there's such a intermesh between the two i, I think i used to have such a narrow view of creativity i really only saw it from the perspective of fine arts of visual art writing music stuff like that as I've gotten older and become more experienced, I see how science is incredibly creative. Um, business involves an enormous amount of creativity. And I always saw business as being a cold and intellectually sterile environment. But now that I'm in it, I find that's entirely untrue. Um, so there's so many areas in life where creativity is the most important thing. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. I certainly didn't. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring up that you were in plays. And so you did some some acting, I guess, amateur acting when you were younger. And it just, just kind of, um, I just made me think, you know, you watch your videos, you can tell you've got a certain presentation style. And I don't think that's that uncommon. Like, I know Peter Brown was pretty into, you know, acting and stuff when he was, you know, in high school drama, stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Um, and I, I think that... I didn't know that about Peter, but that makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah, just... I don't know. We had him on the podcast long ago, and I believe he said something about that. And it's it's just like these skills that you pick up. You never know what the skills you pick up that seem kind of like nebulous. And oh, who knows how that's that's just fun. But you never know how those skills are really going to serve you later. And it's obviously those presentation skills you can you could tell that come out in your videos, which is which is great. Of course. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, you know what I found was when I got into teaching, I was surprised and a little bit disappointed at how little performance background a lot of my colleagues had. And um, many people who I knew were brilliant teachers didn't have some really basic nuts and bolts stuff like how to command a space physically, how to project your voice, how to talk loudly without losing your voice. Like this is acting 101 stuff. It's super basic. You know, you, you learn this just by being in school plays. You know, like I never studied theater in school or anything like that. I was in high school plays and I did a little community theater. And just to do that, they're like, hey, sit down. Let me show you this voice exercise. Okay, do this every day while you're in this play. Like, you're losing your voice. This is why. You know, and then I went and applied that stuff. Oh, and I studied uh, voice, studied singing for a little while. And I just applied that stuff to teaching. And um, I think it's, it's ludicrous that that's not like part of teaching curricula you know, for, for training teachers, because that's, it's like central to what you do. It's performance. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm sure, you know, as you said, some teachers can be absolutely brilliant, but not know how to really get out what they have to say. 
I mean, even even in business, I remember, you know, you go through and you think, well, there's not, you don't need to be able to write very well. You know, it's not like that's an important thing. At least that was my attitude. I was thinking, but now, you know, I can, I can say I'm like, actually a professional writer. So it's like, it's kind of, it's kind of strange because I was always a pretty good writer, but it wasn't like, I don't know, I guess I always thought that was secondary. But now, as I get older, and especially even when I was working for a, a company, a manufacturing company, some people would send these emails or write up work instructions. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? You, you know, you need, you've got, like, like, I just remember like my boss saying, you know, can you check this? Because he knew I, he knew I could put together a sentence. He's like, yeah, you know, you can you check this over? And it's like, why? These people, they probably know what they're doing, but they don't come across as knowledgeable in, uh, you know, as far as writing. And I guess, I guess acting and pro projecting and, and speaking is another. I guess another level to that. I don't know. It's, it's a super common problem. And I certainly would have had good job security if I had stuck with teaching writing because we're always going to have a fresh crop of people who can't write. Now, as far as you mentioned your business, you, you say YouTube, but you said you've got a lot of this stuff going on. I, I noticed you sell woodworking plans, correct? So that's, yeah. is that, um, I don't know if you want to get into details, but what like, sure. just percentage wise, what, what would you say, how, how would you say your business breaks down? Well, my business, so it's about 50% Patreon. Okay. Um, so that's my, my largest thing. And I do a lot of stuff to create community on Patreon. We have a discourse discussion forum. Um, we have a really active membership there. My patrons get my plans for free. Oh. They do a lot of the projects. We comment back and forth on that. We're right now introducing a new feature called Invited Tutorials where the community will ask community members to write up an article or like a video essay on something they're doing. And we hope to introduce a YouTube incubator in the future where people can sort of start putting their YouTube videos together and show them to other people in the community and kind of get some feedback before they want to release them to the wider YouTube audience. So we haven't really rolled this out yet. It's a new thing, but my ambition is to have the next person who eclipses me in YouTube come from this community. Like I want somebody to come out of my community and do better than me. That sounds a, fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. It really does. Thank you. Um, and so plans are, uh, they're another big part of my business. Um, people, they, people really appreciate having that. And I like putting them out. I do a lot of tool building on my channel. Um, because no matter how you do it, woodworking is just brutally expensive. And if you can make your own tools, it's very helpful. And some of them aren't that difficult to make, and you can save a lot of money. So that's a big part of it. YouTube itself is a part, and um, uh, my second book is coming out in May. My publisher would be very upset if I didn't promote it. So my book is called uh, it's called Everyday Woodworking, and okay. you pre-order it on Amazon right now. So if you just search everyday woodworking and uh, I'll put a link in the description, okay. I super appreciate that. Yep. And uh, so that's it's just pre-order right now, but it's at the printer currently. It's done and it'll be ready in May. Well, well you have a, a grad. Do you have a doctorate or a grad master degree in English? Or which I have a one? doctorate in English. Okay. So I guess I guess it would just be ludicrous if you were a, a woodworking YouTuber and you didn't write a book about it. I mean, it just seems destined to happen. Yeah, and this is my second one. I wrote a book about uh, using the wood lathe Whoa. Uh, two years ago. Uh, and that one I self-published on Amazon. And then this one is with Skyhorse Publishing, which is a, a decent-sized Manhattan publisher. Okay. 
Very but cool. I, I guess I guess you know that being said, with your background, you can pretty much you can pretty much guarantee it's written well, not just somebody. I do know how to put a book together. It's not, yeah. I mean, and it's not because I have some incredible amount of um, talent for it. I just have a lot of training. I was in, oh, sure. you know, between undergrad and grad school, I was in academia for eleven years, and then I had a faculty position at the University of California for four more years after that. So. I mean, honestly, after all of that, if you can't write a book, something is the matter. <laughs> so have you written other books before that? Is this like other not like whatever? Well, you know, I wrote a dissertation. Oh, um, sure. I wrote a weird, terrible dissertation that no one should ever read. Um, so that's a book. And then, yeah, I've done a lot of fiction writing and other things that have not gotten published that I haven't even tried to get published. Oh, sure. A lot of people write a few books and kind of stick them in a drawer before they actually publish something. That's pretty common. I feel like I've uh, gotten a tiny bit into one or two books and then, you know, follow through. And I'm sure that's, as you said, pretty, pretty common. It's very common. Yeah. There, a lot of people probably write three or four books before they even have one they want to submit for publication. It's just hard. Writing books oh, yeah. is, is, is difficult and takes a lot of practice. As far as your woodworking, I guess it's you're trying to basically start from the basics, right? I guess Pat, you had a you had a couple of questions. Yeah, I remember. I think the first video yours I found was the the work the workbench build out of the two by fours that low workbench. The low Roman bench. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and I remember I found that shortly after I bought my CNC machine, and I need to build a nice table for my CNC. And I and I'm watching you playing it. And I'm thinking, <clears throat> boy, I could put that whole table right in the CNC and just flatten the top. It'll do the work for me. Yeah, I still haven't done it. It's on my list, though, to do. <laughs> I thought I had a really good idea last year. I was like, oh, my God, I should put together some sort of thing for an ultra-low-budget CNC that just plain slabs. That would be amazing. And then I Googled yeah. it, and there's 85 companies that already make that. And I was like, yeah. oh, well, it is a good idea, but I've, I have been beaten to the punch on that. Yep. Yeah, I've, I've, had, I've had so many inventions that I've come up with that then i just google them and oh it's, it's been it's been done before you know they're good because somebody yeah. else is already making you can just go buy it on amazon <laughs> jeremy you should know yeah. that already yeah so uh yeah so the the roman workbench and i gotta give credit to a guy named chris schwarz who wrote a wonderful book called ingenious mechanics and it's all about those old low benches that were the dominant form for thousands of years and still are in a lot of parts of the world. So it was entirely something I didn't invent. My contribution was building it out of construction lumber with uh, like six tools. When you, when you say low bench, how, how low are these, are these benches? Uh, picture a picnic bench. Okay. That. Oh, right. like the bed, not the and, and picnic table, but the part you sit on. Yeah, and that's why work benches are called benches because they genuinely used to be. So people actually were sitting at them and working sitting down that yeah it has yeah, that was... uh, it has enormous mechanical advantages because one of the biggest problems you have with a bench uh you guys have an engineering background is that you have a bench or a table and you apply force to it linear force what happens to the table well this that's a it's gonna tump over it moves yeah right unless it's very very heavy or attached to something and that makes good woodworking benches very difficult to build. Um, but if you sit on it and you add your own weight to it, that problem is solved. And then the weight of the bench or what it's attached to becomes irrelevant 
because you're attached to it. Hmm. Yep. Now, I vastly prefer working on a high bench. It's much better. And frankly, our tools are designed for it now. Like all of our tools are designed for working at standing benches. But if you want to get going, I built that low bench for $30. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive. And a lot of people, and I, I worked on it pretty much um, exclusively for a year. Um, and, you know, if you want to get going in woodworking, you really can just buy, I think it was nine two by fours and a bottle of glue. And it's a bench. You can do projects on it. You say you say you worked on it for a year. I guess you're saying you developed the design for a year. I mean, somebody could build it and. No, I mean I, I worked at that bench as my primary work surface for. About oh, a year. okay, okay, that, that makes. No, sense. I made the I made the bench in like ten hours. Okay. Um, but I I used it as my primary working bench for about a year. It, you know, it's 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 funny. I, I feel like me and probably probably Pat too. We, we came to things from a different perspective. I mean, I. I didn't know anything about woodworking, and I I just saw oh a CNC router that looks interesting. I didn't even really know what a, a router was. We had uh, Winston Moy on la last time, you know, talking about CNC stuff. Talked about a lot of laser stuff, and it's like, well, we should we should really have have Rex on to kind of kind of balance out the balance out our perspective, you know. Just... It's all it's all on a continuum. I love that stuff. It's just so counter to what I do on my channel. Yep. that it's not something that I investigate. I really think my viewers would probably dislike it if I went in that direction. And I'm not dying to get into CNC and lasers, that stuff. Other people are doing that really well. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, um, well, I guess I guess being, you know, your business being YouTube-based in, in a lot of ways, do you find that kind of restricting as to what you can you can make? I don't find that it's restricting. I just find that in any business there are incentives. Um, so one of the things I had a much more, I guess you would call it a more generic woodworking channel when I first started and I did a lot of power tool work and some hand tool work. And it was just really clear that the hand tool stuff was more popular. Hmm. And there was something that I brought to that approach. Not like there was some huge lack of hand tool woodworking content, but there was something that I brought to it that people liked. And I just, I went where the viewers were. And there was this really uh, virtuous cycle where as I moved closer to hand tool woodworking, it also came to interest me more. And I was reading more about it and researching more about it. And I realized that when I started my channel, I completely misunderstood what hand tool woodworking even was. And I think 99% of woodworkers completely misunderstand what it is. Hmm. And that allowed me that's that's where the genesis of the channel was like, oh, most people, even people who own some hand tools, they have no idea what's actually happening here intellectually and structurally. And I don't usually get this like technical and heady in my videos, but that's sort of the underpinning is trying to get people to think about it differently. You know, I find myself interested in so many different things. that I feel like it's not necessarily not necessarily good for you too, but it, it's nice that you've been able to maybe... I guess find I find a cool niche that people people like and and you like and everybody's everybody's happy with. Yeah, it's so an ultra cool niche. I, I'm I'm very I I don't feel hemmed in. I'm delighted to be doing. Oh, uh, that's that's awesome. Well, well, listen. I I think probably uh maybe we could take our coffee break now and maybe when we come back we could maybe talk about some specifics, maybe some of your favorite tools, bills, et cetera, et cetera. Does it sound uh sound great. good with you guys? Yeah, we could absolutely. 
Hey guys, uh, welcome to the coffee break. Pat and I are just having a little coffee, supposedly. Um, today, we, we want to give a shout out to our top five Patreons. First of all, we got Christina Carney, Stuart Mor Morrow, Brian Moses, Positive Waves, and Stephen Booker. Thanks so much for sponsoring us. Um, it's really, really awesome that you guys have decided to, to support the show like that. If you would like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash the creativity podcast, and you can uh, give any, you know, lowest level is $1, and I think the highest level is something like $10,000, but obviously you're not. Well, if you do do that, we'd uh, we'd love that. So Of course. Anyway, but yeah, is that is that the correct address, Pat? I know we That is that. the correct address. I checked while you were figuring it out. Okay. And our, fr our new friend Rex says it's a good idea for you to support us on Patreon, so yeah. who are we to argue? We, uh, we love you to support us, and uh, thank you for doing that, and thank you for listening. And also, you know, leave a comment on YouTube, SoundCloud, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure they like that. Yeah, are you? I'll yeah. drink more. Rex, I think, oh, am I supposed to say we're back from the, did I screw that up? Yeah, I guess you could, you whatever. Just like that. You have to do it like that. That was perfect. So Rex, I, I think I was watching one of your videos and you talked about, maybe it was several videos, I don't even, I, it's tough for me to remember. You talked about how much less space some of this hand tool woodworking, and I was thinking about it, you know, you know, like a table saw, a band saw, a drill press, and a whole bunch of power tools, handheld power tools. That'll take up half your garage before you, you know, before you know it. I thought it was yep. interesting that, you know, you're, like you were just talking about your Roman workbench and all the hand tools go, but that just takes up a corner, a little small corner of your space. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so it's totally true what you say. If you buy the, 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 the normal machine woodworking tools, I mean, yeah, a two car garage without batting an eye that takes up an enormous amount of space. Um, if you look at historical furniture shops and cabinet shops, they were shockingly small, eight feet by 15 feet sometimes. I mean, unbelievably small. So really the, the standard at the time was enough room for the bench and the tool chest and whatever project you were working on. And that's it. Um, yep. Especially because the, the spaces were very uh, inefficient to heat. So you really wanted to be working in the smallest space possible so you didn't literally freeze to death in the winter. I, I love how you've gotten the historical background of all this so much. How you obviously researched it. That's, that's really cool. I think that part is essential um, if you're doing hand tool work because the techniques and designs and tools evolved over such a long period of time and they were refined to an unbelievable degree and so to be divorced from the historical way of doing it is a guarantee of wasting time <laughs> you, you are you are definitely going to do things in ways and I'm, I'm a huge believer that there's no right way but there are lots of wrong ways and if so you're many not wrong ways historical way you're going to pick a wrong way 10 times <laughs> out of 10 you know, so I think that's really important. I own hundreds of books about woodworking and the, the amount that's been written, um, even since the 1700s, which was the, the first English language book. And if you go into French and German, there are even earlier texts. You can go way back and those books are shockingly relevant. Really? Uh, you, you own hundreds of books on woodworking. That's, I do. I do. And that's there amazing. are probably thousands of them out there. Well, I guess I guess that's what you get when you get a professional woodworker that has a 
doctorate in English. I guess. Yeah, the two things weirdly came together really well. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, so. I've I've enjoyed watching your talk about different vices. On yeah. the leg vice was interesting. The just the the vices that woodworkers normally use today are interesting for different reasons. But I would. I had no idea all this stuff was so complicated. Neither did I. Uh, I think a lot of people are just familiar with cast iron vices. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, when I was growing up, because I grew up around uh, machinists and uh, uh, auto workers, we had I mean, literally probably a dozen mechanics vices scattered. My folks have a farm, so scattered around the farm. And I, just, I was just like, well, this is what a vice is. And when I started woodworking, I got one of those and bolted it to my bench. I had no idea there was even a woodworking vice. And then I was like, oh, my God, look at this crazy thing. And I bought one of those and I bolted it on. And then I came to realize the woodworking vice, the modern woodworking vice, actually pretty much sucks <laughs> and is actually sort of awful. And the ones that look much more rudimentary and are mostly or even entirely made out of wood work a lot better and are much more flexible. And I was surprised as anyone when I figured that out. Yeah, I, I just replaced a um, Ir Irwin vice, Irwin metal vice, with a uh, more a higher quality. I, I don't want I don't want to rip on Ir Irwin, but you know it, it is what it is. Very expensive. Yeah, and um, I don't know. They're both very much metal working vices, and it's I, I don't know. It's interesting that something like that can be so so specialized. Something that you wouldn't. Something that I think for a lot of people is almost an afterthought can be such a. At the same time, it's so fundamental, I guess. Different cultures had um, shockingly different solutions to creating vices. The number of designs that are out there, I'm doing a whole series on them right now. I call it Vice Squad because I'm clever. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I'm building a bunch of historical wooden vices, trying to get a better idea for myself. I almost said get a better grip, but then I decided that would be a bad joke. Um, to get a better idea of which one I want to use as I continue to build more benches and do different things. Um, and it's, it's just been full of surprises. And then you, many people are very impressed with Japanese woodworking and I am very much too. And it appears that the Japanese genuinely just never invented the vice. Wow. They don't have them. I mean, they do now, but so, so yeah. Well then how did they, how did they hold stuff? <laughs> well, it's interesting too. You only have to go back 300, 350 years in the European tradition, and there are no vices. It's a new invention, and you got to keep in mind we've been doing high-level woodwork since the Egyptians and the Romans. Both of those cultures had the dovetail joint, had inlay, had all the crazy stuff. So, and vices didn't exist probably until the 1600s, okay. uh, especially in Europe. And you know what's interesting is that a lot of work can be restrained just by having a stop, just a, a, a block that comes up out of the bench, and that just keeps your work from moving. Now, there's another technology called the crochet, which is French for hook, and it's literally just a wooden hook on the edge of your bench, and that'll grab the end of a board to let you work on the long hmm. edge. Um, so I actually, I built a, another bench, I'm really into work benches. Um, an, an English joiners by uh, English joiners bench, and I started off with that bench as a viceless bench, and did a couple of videos on how you could use it without even having a vice. And then I got super fed up with that and put a vice on it, and I'm much happier. 
Dices are amazing, but you can work without them. Huh. Well, that's that's really fat. I mean, it, I, I I feel like your historical knowledge is so so fascinating. Have you ever thought about writing a book on that? Specifically? You know, a, a lot of those books exist, believe it or oh. not. Um, okay. So I think the book I just wrote was a how-to book, and uh, it was just such a grind putting it together. I'm very happy with the book, but the amount of photography and captioning the photography and making sure you're capturing each step, I don't see myself writing another how-to book just because you, the process isn't fun. You did the photography too? Yes. Oh. Uh, it's, that's common these days. Oh, Most okay. publishers don't really provide you with a lot of support there. Um, or if they do, you have to pay the photographer. So okay. it's far more common for people to take their own pictures. Um, and so I think as I write more books, there are going to be more books about history or more books about just how to think about woodworking, um, how to get more enjoyment out of it. Yeah. I th I My least favorite thing to write is how-tos. I hate I hate writing how-tos or tutorials. Or, it's the it's the worst. It's so. Uh, but everybody loves it. Yeah. Oh. Which is a bummer. <laughs> it is. It's a huge bummer, and there's a huge market for it. Um, and I think that's I think that's a good argument for writing, but not trying to make writing your um, your main source of income, because mm -hmm. then you can sort of write the books you want, and if they make a little money, cool. And if they don't do so great, well, at least you wrote the book you wanted to write gotten very not far enough into a book to really say definitively <laughs> you know i think honestly if you've if you've even gotten to the point of starting it uh, it's it, it's almost inevitable that you really do have a book in you and you should you should make that happen i think the majority of people don't even start if you've even started a book you could probably write a book you could probably write a book that was readable so do it jeremy do it do that well, well well thank you <laughs> yeah i don't know it's um it's always, you know, as you said, though, or as you kind of maybe alluded to, it's, it's always a kind of a question of the, the time versus the reward, too, because, you know, I got a family to support and yada, yada, yada. So I got if I if I don't make enough, you know, I work for myself and if I don't make enough money for myself, then I got to find a job working for somebody else. And that's that's a, a nightmare not even worth contemplating. Having an actual job. No yeah. Thanks. It's I, the worst. I mean, no. Don't get me wrong. I learned I learned a lot, and there's a lot of good things to having a you know actual job. But I'll say, having worked for myself for several years, I I, I like that. I ain't going better. back now. Now that I'm off on my own, I'm staying on my own. Good for Especially you. Yeah, my wife has health insurance through her job. So oh, well, that's that's good too. Yeah, health insurance can be a that's bit a, of yeah, a, that's a tough a one. Toughie. Working spouse though, that's not bad. That's pretty great. Yep. <laughs> Pat, Pat had down about the Japanese woodworking too. I guess is there anything else? I don't know. Is it interesting? You know, I feel like a lot of things, obviously, that the uh, I guess Western world versus the Asian world, they develop so differently. I mean, is it is it totally? But obviously, they both do beautiful types of work. Is it? Is that been interesting to see the kind of the contrast between the two? Yeah. So the contrasts are very interesting, and also the parallel development. So uh, everybody's heard of the dovetail joint. That's like the most famous joint in woodworking. And what's interesting is that the Egyptians had it, the Romans had it, the Europeans have it, the Japanese have it, the Chinese have it. And it seems like it developed independently in mm. many parts of the world. So you guys can probably attest coming from more of an engineering background. Sometimes there's just a best solution. 
Mm-hmm. And if you have to join two flat planes at a right angle, it's really hard to beat the dovetail joint for structural rigidity. It's just amazing. Um, and so it, it seems like they um, – that everybody sort of invented that because it just works the best. Uh, what I find really interesting and I don't have a good explanation for is that the conversation about woodworking seemingly worldwide is dominated by British and American woodworking, continental European a little bit, and Japanese. Hmm. And it's not like nobody else was doing good woodworking throughout history. So I've done a little bit of research into Chinese woodworking, which is without question as interesting as any other style you could ask for. You want to guess how many English language books there are on Chinese hand tool woodworking? I'm going to take a guess. guess. Two? I'm saying zero. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was... uh... I was infinitely off, I guess, mathematically. And, and that's something that I find extremely curious. Yeah. And I re- because woodworkers are obsessed with Japanese woodworking because it's yeah. very intricate um, and and very uh, very skillfully executed, very aesthetically beautiful, very different from Western woodworking. But Chinese woodworking is no less interesting, and yet it gets literally no attention. Korean woodworking, also very high quality, very high end, no attention whatsoever from the Western world. Hmm. And that's well, weird. I guess, I guess if there's a uh, Chinese or Korean person looking to make an interesting YouTube channel, that's a woodworker yeah. probably. I know what I'm going to be Googling after this podcast. They're Chinese language channels, which makes them difficult to penetrate for the oh, Westerner. Right. Yep. I've yeah. certainly watched some of them, and I'm sitting there thinking, "Man, I wish I spoke Mandarin." This is fascinating. <laughs> oh, and they yeah. fascinatingly, uh, Chinese hand tool woodworkers use a low bench, just like the Roman one. Hmm. Well, that's, a, that's interesting. I, yeah. As you said, I guess some things just just make sense. Pat, I know you were were you wondering about axes and hatchets for woodworking. Is that oh right? yeah, I thought that was interesting. I I had no idea people used in ever used axes to remove material i was watching a video where you were doing that yesterday i was you know for good or for ill a lot of our modern conversation about woodworking is really determined by the woodworking machinery industry because they sponsor the magazines which is where 99 percent of the conversation took place for decades Yep. And magazines like Fine Woodworking and Popular Woodworking really set the stage for YouTube woodworking, unquestionably, because that's that's where the knowledge was. And these are high-end publications who very much care about editorial independence. But if all your money is coming from one industry, there is an inevitable tendency in that direction. And I think I can say with Popular Woodworking in particular, they kind of fought admirably against it and moved more and more towards an artisanal approach where the machines were more optional. Um, I think this is my long way of saying people don't talk about axes and woodworking because you can't make money off them. Yep. Whereas if you sell somebody a table saw, you can make giant piles of money. So there's just a tremendous disincentive for talking about that. But once you get going, the efficiency of axe work is unbelievable. 
Um, so if you think of any time you're making a long cut, we call it a rip cut in wood to make a plank narrower. A lot of the time you can skip the saw, split the waste off with an axe and just plane that edge. And it's a fraction of the time. Really? Yeah. That, that's, that's shock, shocking to me. That it is shocking. It was shocking to me too. And then if you go to, so something a lot of people don't realize, which is also interesting is that the sawn board you know, so a, a, a board that is sawn out of a tree with a big saw, that's like a 300-year-old invention. There was no such thing as sawn lumber if you go back just a few centuries. All woodwork was done with split lumber. It's called riving. And oh. almost all domestic furniture was made of oak because oak splits exceptionally well. And so if you were a woodworker, you would and, – and the other thing that people uh, are shocked by, I was shocked by it, is that until very recently, there was no such thing as drying wood. You split, so your, what pieces out, you split your pieces out of the log and you built your furniture with green wood. And then and they – and they all, all – it all dries itself. Together. And, it's it's oh. really a, a feat of engineering, and it's something worth looking up. There's a joint called the Drawboard Mortise and Tenon, and it's where uh, a mortise, which is a rectangular hole, and the tenon is a rectangular slot that fits in it, and then there's a peg drilled through both of those members, and the peg holes are intentionally offset. They're not aligned. Oh. So as you drive the peg through forces the two pieces together. There's no glue in this joint. It's 100% mechanical, and it's held in tension, and it does not care what the wood does. Once that joint is together, you can't blow it up with a bomb. Now, now as, as, the, as the wood dries, it's together. Does that help cement it in? It does, yeah. And, and another thing that woodworkers became really skilled at was using differential moisture content to make their work hold together. So this is true in um, English and Welsh chair making and also in American Appalachian chair making. We have an amazing tradition of rural chair making in America, beautiful, really comfortable chairs. And what the chair makers would do is their uprights for the chairs, the legs, would be made out of wood that was relatively green and then what we call the rungs, which are the horizontal parts, would be bone dry. They would dry it as close to zero as they could. Then when you drill a hole and put the rung into the upright, the rung is dry, the upright is wet, they trade moisture. So the upright dries and shrinks, and the rung absorbs a little bit of moisture and swells. Wow, that's really... And Fascinating. And again, no glue. And you get a joint that, again, will not come apart for love or money. That is um, amazing. And this is what I mean when I say, and I, I don't want to come off the wrong way when I say people don't understand woodworking. It makes me sound like a jerk. I don't, I don't mean it that way. I mean, when I found this stuff out, I was like, oh, I completely misunderstood this craft. There's stuff going on here that, you know, when you see somebody make a box on a table saw, you think, oh, that's woodworking. Well, not really. No. <laughs> not at all, actually. Yeah. Rex, I knew I knew nothing about woodworking, but I didn't realize how much I actually 
didn't know this i'm learning so much talking to you today Rex. Uh, you know and i just and people <laughs> i find this really funny but people ask me all the time they're like my god how do you know this stuff and i'm always like books 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 <laughs> go to the library <laughs> i guarantee you they've got a ton of books on this stuff that's, that's um, so, so fascinating because you know i'm, I'm the kind of person i'm the kind of quote-unquote word worker that you know gets it done good enough i mean like the the table in the background I, I built that and i was pretty proud of that but it's I not I like it oh well, well thank you very much <laughs> but it's it's made so that i could do it it's not made to be a fine piece of furniture i i don't know i don't well, know where I, i'm going with this exactly developing a, a concept recently that i think is really important and maybe i want to write a book or an article about it but i think we want to make a distinction between woodworking and creative fabrication that's a and i point. think creative fabrication is a hundred percent as useful, noble, interesting, difficult as woodworking. But a lot of people who look like they're woodworking, what they're really doing is creative fabrication. And the way I would just say that you can di differentiate that is if you could just take the wood out of the equation and sub out a different material and get the same thing, you're not woodworking. Then what you're doing is creative fabrication, which is awesome. I've done a ton of that in my life. But woodworking really is a craft where if, if it's not – if you take the wood out of it and try to use some other material, it completely doesn't work at all. And so they're just two separate things. I, I think that's a fantastic concept and you're the first person I've ever heard to make that distinction because, I mean, you're right. I mean this, this works – this was exactly what I wanted and it, it did what I wanted. But at the same time – Am I woodworking? I don't know. It could have been. It could have been anything, really. And that's probably in like the the middle between the two. It was a little bit creative fabrication and a little bit woodworking. If you're making a table, you're probably woodworking. But if you're CNCing a sign out of wood, not that that's not useful and interesting because it really is. I really like that stuff. But I probably wouldn't call that woodworking. I would call that creative fabrication, where the material happens to be wood. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think I arrived at that distinction because I was definitely a creative fabricator. And actually, my business is called Rex Kruger Fabrication because when I first started, that's what I thought of myself as. I'm a person who can work in a lot of different materials. I worked a lot for businesses. I made different stuff, you know, decor and things. And that's how I, I can get stuff done by knowing how to use plastics and acrylic and PVC foam. And I can blacksmith a little bit and I can weld a little bit and I can sort of cobble it together and get it done. The more I got into furniture making, the more I was like, oh, this whole time I thought I was woodworking and I totally wasn't. <laughs> well, that, that's cool. That's an interesting distinction. I, I think that's, you know, maybe that defines you, I guess, your channel. It's, it's, it's woodworking yet with fairly simple tools that anybody anybody can approach. Is that kind of the, if you were to summarize everything? You know, a lot of people want to get into it. And uh, the thing I hear from my viewers all the time is they want to get into woodworking and they see a video on YouTube that says, make a basic box. And they're like, oh, that's for me. And they click on that video and it's a guy, no exaggeration, using $10,000 worth of machinery yep. to make a basic box. No exaggeration. This box only in... costs $3. $3 all you need is. And... Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, it's, it's, a, it's definitely an instance where the power tool industry has really successfully captured the intellectual space of woodworking um, in a way that's, that's really detrimental 
because most power tools are unreasonably dangerous for what you get out of them. And I own all of them. Yeah. But I've also been to the emergency room because of them several times. Yeah, I, I um, saw your table saw video on that. That was yeah, I feel like everybody's you know. seen that video. And I even have a saw stop, which I think is a wonderful product. But in general, I think it's kind of a scandal that you can walk into Home Depot and buy a table saw for $100. Um, because you can literally cut your hand off with that thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't own, own one because of basically because I had a, a boss at one time that was missing his thumb and I'm like, you know what? I'm not. Boy, and that's I'm, the and, one and, I need the most is the well, thumb. I was like, that's you what know, separates like, me from, from, yeah. With, you take these opposable thumbs away. Yeah. What am I? What yeah. do we got then? We got nothing. Yeah. yeah. No, it's terrible. You know, and I, it's, it's really funny. I, I have fairly expensive machinery and I used to use it to earn my living. And it's unbelievable how much time that stuff spends just sitting collecting dust now. Um, and what I find constantly amazing is how often I do a project and I just think, oh, I didn't even want to turn on a project, I, turn on a power tool. I know how to do this stuff by hand. It's not. And, and another really important distinction to make is if you're going to be a hand tool woodworker, it's very, very useful to make projects that were popular during the pre-industrial period. So I think a place where people get into trouble is they really love mid-century modern furniture, which I like a lot. But then they think, I'm going to make a mid-century modern piece using hand tools, and they get really frustrated. Mid-century modern was a style that was developed with factory production in mind. It was designed to be made using machines. If you approach that from a hand tool standpoint, you can do it. Don't get me wrong, and people do, and it's impressive, but boy, it takes a long time. Um, I'd make a lot of early American furniture, like for instance, I just made a blanket chest recently, and um, it's optimized for hand tool production. It's nailed together using uh, square nails or rectangular nails. I should have one on my desk here someplace, but my desk is a disaster and I can't see it. Um, and uh, it's optimized for hand tool making, so you can put one together in about 12 hours, start to finish, without Including a single Including the cuts and everything, just from... oh, 100%. From lumber to a completed chest, you could probably make one in like 12 hours. So two short days in the shop, and That's you're ready cool. to paint it. Yeah, and it's because it was developed at a time when there were no machines, they didn't exist, and people needed a high standard of efficiency in order to just pay the rent. If you're making these chests, you got to get these chests out the door. So pre-industrial furniture has unbelievable efficiency built into it. Nice. So sort of focusing on that helps to keep people think, oh my God, hand tools must take forever. Well, yeah, they take forever unless you're making hand tool specific projects, in which case, no, they don't take very long. So if you were to do a project like that, but let's just say you shortcutted it with a you know, miter saw, you know, let's just say you decided, well, I'm not going to be a pure, I'm going to use the automation that I have. Sure. Could you make that in eight hours? I mean, is that, or is it, is it so specialized for the hand tools that that is the way you're, you need to do it? No, it's not so specialized for the hand tools. You could do it with power tools and it would be interesting to sort of run both things side by side and see which one was quicker. I suspect the power tool approach would be quicker um, probably not by as much as you think, maybe 25% quicker off the top of my head. 
um, because you still have to do the assembly and you still have to fine tune the joints and you still have to drive the nails and you still have to do all of that mm-hmm. stuff. A lot of it has handwork just sort of built in. Machinery also, machinery is amazing for production work, but it really sucks for individual operations. You lose so much time in setup. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Collection. Setting up the CNC to run one part is a lot of work. You know, and that's why I Compared think to... uh, a lot of people, for instance, are still really hot on manual machining. Mm-hmm. You know, and why there's such a thriving community of manual machinists. Because if you're making one-offs, CNCing that is ridiculous. Just mm-hmm. go to the lathe and make the thing. You know, so and, and I think uh, and I mostly make one offs. I don't work. I don't do client work anymore. I make stuff for my channel. I make stuff for my own family. When you're making one of something, machinery is a lot less efficient than you think it is in a production environment. It's unbeatable. I I, I got a f- funny story about that. I was um, when I was a, a co-op, like an intern in uh, college, my boss wanted me to make this um, like a, a part with a uh convex or convex radius on it you know and you know he wanted me to do it on the i was like well i guess i can give this cnc guys but maybe i should try to do it on the the manual mill myself and i remember putting the formula into excel and trying to figure out everything else and i actually figured out like every single point and was able to actually able to do it i was really uh proud of myself so you know yeah we we have a saying in hand tool work if you can see the line you can saw the line and the point is you have a line the craziest compound angle you can come up with. If it's a straight line, I can saw it. Whereas with machinery, some cuts are very difficult to execute on a table saw. And the amount of jigging and setup is unbelievable. Same cut, one saw, five minutes, done out the door. Nice. That's awesome. So it really depends. It, It has a lot to do with your outlook and with picking your projects intelligently. Um, and, and thoughtfully. And there's uh, a whole body of furniture that was developed for mass production and was developed for machine tool making. And if you're going to make that stuff, by all means, use machine tools. There's right. no need to be a masochist. I guess that brings up a good point. You know, we've been talking for a while. Can, um, maybe can you tell us what, sh- what your current projects are? Is there uh, anything cool you're working yeah, I just on? Finished an American blanket chest that I'm really pleased with. Um, and I'm going to do a shaker style end table coming up soon. And I'm also really interested in a traditional tool chest for woodworkers. And I'm working on a design that will make a traditional sort of difficult chest more accessible to somebody who doesn't have two weeks to put into it. Um, organizing your tools and putting them in a, um, small physical space is another thing that changes your relationship to them and how you think about them. I have right now kind of a diffuse shop where some stuff's over here and some stuff is over there. And I've just slowly woken up to the idea of like, oh no, all the stuff needs to be in one spot. I shouldn't be walking across the shop for anything. It should all be right there. And having a chest, I think, is going to do that. So that's that's a project that should be done in the next couple of months. I'm in the, the CAD design phase right now. Nice, nice. So do you, you put out a video every week or every... And whenever it's done, or how does that work with you? Video every week. I'm about to transition to doing three a month. I am definitely riding the line of burnout right now. I've done uh, 187 videos, I think is the number. And I've been on a weekly schedule for almost three years. And I am about to just fall over and die from exhaustion. 
Well, th well, thank you so much for taking the time out to be on the podcast today. Well, it's okay. This week's video is done. So I have to, uh, that's fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have to go to uh, I have to go to a shorter, uh, a less demanding production cycle because I'm I'm just I won't even survive the year if I don't. Oh man. Well, all the best. Now, now Pat, you've been working on anything cool too? I've been working on something very strange. A couple of days ago, a friend of mine handed me a laser cutter, and I can even pick it up. This is amazing. It's a very strange little device. We, you know, we haven't really talked about laser cutters on here too much, so I'm glad. I wouldn't know what that was in a million years if you showed it to me. I know, right? It's a, it's, there's a stepper motors, two of them in the back, one for each axis, and this is uh, on the end here. It's a laser. A, it's a small laser. It's only a seven watt. So basically, you, for those for those listening, I'm a, you're holding up basically like a like a gantry style machine with a laser head on it, and just totally open. Yeah. And it just sits out here. You just put this down on the, well, you can put it down on your workbench, put something underneath it and engrave or cut. It's not gonna cut much at seven watts. But what my friend said was neat about this is you could just take this and hold it up to the wall and let it, you know, engrave your logo or something on a door, on a, yeah. Yeah, I thought this was silly when he How much bought it. $180. Come on. Yeah, 180 bucks with the laser, and it's there's two ways to work it. You either plug it into your computer, or this has Bluetooth, and you can do it from an iPad. But their app for the iPad is kind of garbage. It was pretty huh. terrible. But you know that has unbelievable applications if someone does commercial work, commercial signage work. If you yep. can show up at somebody's business and engrave their logo on the on hardwood the wall, floor, that thing would I pay for thinking, itself in about 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And if yeah. you put your logo on stuff you make, and it's oddly shaped stuff that you can just put that down on it and carve a logo, I, I, it's really neat. Is, and that's something that's commercially, you can just go buy that? Yeah, you can just go buy Yeah, well, it takes like six weeks to get it from China. But yes, you could just buy it and yeah. I'll, I'll leave a link to that in the description too, maybe. Yeah. I think I'm going to get one. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, Rex, Rex, Rex's next video is going to be hint, hint to his only... But but sometimes a little laser cutter in there. <laughs> I can hear the sound of my subscribers unsubscribing as I do that. <laughs> yeah. So Rex was just we were just kidding. If you're subscribed to him. <laughs> Jeremy, what are you working on right now? Yeah, I've actually been making a camera mount, an articulated camera mount with with things cut out, with um, joints cut out on my laser cutter. It's it's been kind of something to. Um, I'm pretty new to laser cutting game myself, and it's been something to kind of help me learn to cut things. You know, basically I cut out one joint and I'm like, well, I cut this out. I can make, you know, 20 more joints. It's, it's just great how kind of what you were talking about, you know, one off stuff is, is, is better if you we're well, not better, but just fairly easy if you do hand tools, but with a laser cutter, a CNC thing, once you have it programmed in, it's like, well, I made one, I can make, I can make 20 of these. And I've got a, um, <laughs> it was actually based on another YouTuber, uh, pocket 83. He made this, he made a, a light stand with this thing. It's like a robot. He called it robot light stand, I, I think. But, you know, basically like an articulated light stand. I'm like, you know, I could try that on my laser cutter. And, you know, just one thing leads to another. And I've got it just about done. And I'm, I'm really happy, really excited about how it's going to eventually turn out. So that does anyway. seem like a great project to me. Oh, thanks so much. So, yeah. Um, well, Rex, the. Uh, I guess. As we're wrapping up here, I just I want to I want to say something to your audience just really quickly. Please, if you're listening to this podcast right now, go to Patreon. 
look these guys up and become a patron. Oh, that's we so live, nice of you. This, this is really important. It's something that matters to me a great deal. We live in an era where people have a completely unrealistic expectation of things being free. And it's not free to make this stuff. It's not free to host it. It's not free. People's time goes into it. And as consumers of media, we have to stop being freeloaders. Um, we can't depend on the ad model because the ad model leads to unbelievably corrosive algorithms that bring out the worst in humanity. Uh, we have to pay for stuff. We have to pay for the stuff that we like. If you can hear my voice right now, you need to pay for this podcast. Go to Patreon and give these guys a buck. You know, what? what's your lowest level? Uh, yeah, a dollar, actually. So uh, yeah. Yeah. You can afford, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you can afford a dollar a month. Don't be a freeloader. Pay for the stuff you like. My YouTube channel is 100% unsponsored. I am only supported by my patrons. And my patrons are what turned my YouTube channel from a hobby into an actual business. And people just need to get used to throwing down a few bucks when they like something. We must go in that direction. Wow. Well, I'm I'm humbled, and uh, we'd I would say the same thing about you, Rex, except probably less eloquently. So, um, <laughs> do what I, I can. just say. Uh, th thanks so much. It is. And, yeah. Thank you, know, you so much, in, Rex. Just in general, it, it is. You're right. It's great to support people you like and. You know, so they can do stuff like this. So yeah, we have to stop seeing it as an option. It, it it's a responsibility. If you consume media, you got to pay for it. Well, fair enough. So so Rex, that being said, where where can we find you? Oh, I'm um, easy to find. You can just go to YouTube and type in Rex Woodworking, and I come right up because I'm the only prominent woodworker named Rex. Fantastic. Um, you can also find me at RexKruger.com. It's K-R-U-E-G-E-R. And I'm sure there'll be a link in the show notes there. And you can also find me on Instagram, but not on Facebook or Twitter, because both of those platforms are cesspools, and I don't want anything to do with them. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, mostly on, that, on that cheery note. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I guess I guess on that note, you can find me on, on YouTube. I'm you just uh, search for Jeremy Cook or Jeremy S. Cook, and I'll be sure to come up because apparently there's a lot of Jeremy Cooks out there. Um, you can also find me on Twitter, which is, uh, <laughs> After at, I've just poisoned at, well for you. At, at Jeremy S. Cook, but you cannot find me on Facebook because I, I'm, I'm agree with you, Rex, about that. Um, yeah. What, what about you, Pat? What about, most people find me on my blog. It's at patshead.com. It's my head. And, yeah. uh, you should be able to figure out how to spell that. It'll be in the show notes though. Right. I, yeah, since I'm doing I'm, the show notes, so it'll so have yeah. to be there. Yeah. And, oh. and I'm on YouTube, but I'm hard to find because there are a lot of, my name is very common. So, Pat, and I don't, yes. I, I got to bring up something that I was uh -oh. excited about. So, oh, you were, you were so excited. He I really was, was Rex. So, so your website is patshead.com, correct? It is. It and is. my email address and is the head at patshead.com. Pat so last night, my wife and I were looking for a show to watch, and we found a show called The Head. It, it's it's called The Head. I was like, did they contact you about being in this spot by any chance? They did not. Nobody asked me. Am I okay. am I am I in it or is it? No, no. It's it's about some people in Antarctica, and uh, you know, I won't reveal it. But you know, the head is either somebody's head, possibly the bathroom, or the head of the research station. 
And, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but it's um, it seems pretty good so far. Although my wife, you know, <laughs> my wife thought the, thought the name was a little silly. For the I show. feel really dumb right now, Jeremy, because I watched half of the first episode the other night of this show. <laughs> I just looked it up. I don't remember noticing the name at all. I just there was HBO said this is what you should watch, and I said, well, we'll see what it is, and. I got distracted. Yeah. Something made me leave the TV, so I didn't finish watching. Well, that's watching. how I ended up watching True Detective, and I'm like three seasons deep into that show now, so oh, they yeah. figured just, something out. We yeah. just got done with a third season. Did you? What do you think about how the first season, how the seasons seem to have no I, no, no connection to each other? I thought that was so kind of really, weird. I'm just getting to the end of the second season, and I'll be interested to watch the third I do think that having them not connected allows them to attract talent because they can say to Matthew McConaughey, hey, man, it's 10 episodes and you're out. You're not going to be here for five years. Yep. And that's how they get A-list movie stars to be in this TV show. They make it a short commitment, yeah. which I completely yep. understand. Uh, sometimes the t- – not, not me. No one cares about me. But sometimes the TV industry comes calling for YouTubers – and a lot of times YouTube people are like, what are you kidding? For the amount of money I'm going to make on a TV show, I'm going to lose money by not making my regular videos. Um, <laughs> well, that's uh, we, we can all hope that we get to that point. I, I suppose. Well, t- no, what I mean is TV doesn't pay. And you can you guys have Jimmy Durest on sometime and have him tell you about his experience in TV. Uh, he had well, four well, shows and I, I don't think he ever made any money worth talking about. Well, actually, we did we did have him on um, earlier in this podcast. I, I remember him talking about. Anyway, I think we touched that a little bit. We should probably. He I should probably have a lot. It opened my eyes to the way that to the way that whole thing works. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh... That being said, if someone wants to give me a TV show, they should totally call me. We can talk about it. I'm not opposed to the idea. Yeah, I mean, look look at this guy. He's he's you know trained in acting. He's he's uh, got a vast. He, academic background he's, he's just bald head that's super hard to film because it's shiny i mean shiny head i mean yep. you know I, he can I wear got, a wig I got <laughs> yeah well on that note um great pleasure I, i'm so humbled by the invitation i enjoyed the conversation immensely thank you guys so much thank oh, you for uh coming on the show this has been fantastic yeah. i learned a lot i learned things i didn't ex- totally different things than i expected to learn and that's awesome yeah yeah we'd it's always good when you can have a guest on and it just kind of evolve. Conversations evolve. That's the best. That's the best way, I think. If you ask my wife, she would say conversations don't evolve. Rex just can't shut up. Even better. That's good for us. Potato, like, potato, as, as yeah, they say. It's, it's all the same to me. So yeah, this was great. Um, I would. Uh, I hope you guys do. I've listened to a few episodes recently, and I thought it was a wonderful podcast. I'll keep listening, and I just oh. I hope you keep having good luck with it. Well, Thank you, Rex. Our our pleasure. That's very kind. So, all right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. Um, if you do, if you do want to sponsor us, go to. Uh, <laughs> if you if you do want to sponsor us. Go, if you do want to sponsor us, uh, if, if if you would, if you would like to, if you would like to, for, I don't know. I think we got enough here. That I, can, I think, yeah, we'll get something out of it. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy.